0: welcome to the kelly patrick show thank you so much for tuning in in today's episode yanni and i are joined by john suarez uh john is with the center for a free Cuba. Great episode today. Really appreciate John joining us. If you are a fan of the Kelly Patrick show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals, 502-386-0978. Welcome to The Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined once again in studio by my lovely wife, Yanni. Yanni, how are you today? Good. Good, appreciate you coming back on. I always get some great feedback when you're on the episodes with, with me.
1: Thank you.
0: For today's episode... I had been in contact with um, the Twitter account that is for, it's called Center for a Free Cuba. And they're, of course, very on top of everything that's going on uh, in Cuba right now. And I had reached out to them. I'd want to do a, a podcast episode to promote Center for a Free Cuba. Of course, Yanni, you gave your seal of approval. Yanni reviewed the Center for a Free Cuba Twitter account. She said, it is not communist. It's anti-communist, so I'm okay with supporting that Twitter page, right, Yanni? Yeah. <laughs> so I got your approval on that. Um, they directed me to John Suarez, who is on the line with us. John, how are you today? Doing well. How are you? Doing thank very you for well. Having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, before we jump into some of the details for exactly what we're going to discuss in today's episode, uh, John could you introduce yourself and also give the Kelly Patrick show audience a description of what is the center for a free Cuba?
2: Well, um, my name is John Suarez. I'm a uh, conservative and a human rights activist. I've been involved in the the issue of Cuba since approximately 1993, uh, starting in my, my college days. And, What I've, what sort of brought me to this issue was one growing up in Miami and getting to know a lot of victims of repression, uh, former political prisoners, people who were tortured, family members of people who were killed in Cuba and then going out. And I actually worked on a couple of, uh, well, on a congressional race in uh, Nebraska in 92 and then in Iowa in 1994, a governor's race. And when I was out there, I ran into the pro-Castro lobby, uh, first uh, lady by name of uh, Sandra Levinson that had a center out of New York City that would take young Americans to Cuba with the objective of brainwashing them of how Cuba was his paradise and how they should want to recreate the communist system of Cuba in the United States. I saw this in, in Iowa in 94 and 92, it was Cuban diplomats that were traveling around to different colleges pitching the communist system as an alternative model and was obviously horrified and decided that we needed to counter that with a messaging in English about this experience that I knew growing up in Miami. Uh, so that's, that's my story. The center for a free Cuba, uh, was founded in 1997 by Frank Calzone and a number of, uh, Cuban exiles, uh, diplomats, uh, intellectuals, academics that had a desire to see a a restoration of democracy and the rule of law in Cuba. And that is the objective of the center and has been going now on 25 years. Um, We have a board of directors. uh, The president of the organization is Ambassador Otto J. Reich, who had been uh part of the Reagan administration and the George W Bush administration he would worked in the uh, at state at the State Department at NSC um, our chairman uh, Guillermo Marmol is uh, a businessman who works with foot Locker uh, based out of Texas uh, and we have a, a very um, heavy hitting group of uh, of members of our board that that go from there. And we also have a research council with folks like Carlos Abed de Montaner, Carlos Aire, who wrote when snow falls in Havana. And again, very distinguished, uh, group of, uh, of thinkers. And I'm the executive director. And, uh, basically what we do is we work in a collaborative effort to advance a pro freedom agenda for Cuba. This means, uh, inserting ourselves into the U.S.-Cuba public policy debate, also in Europe, Latin America, and also trying to provide assistance to the victims of repression, families of political prisoners, former political prisoners, highlight the cases of dissidents. Um, we've had uh, victims of repression that we've taken to speak at the U.N. Human Rights Council, for example, in Geneva. Uh, most recently, was Surley Avila Leon in 2018. Uh, she'd been the victim of a machete attack for trying to uh, reopen a school in Cuba that the communist regime uh, did not look on kindly when she went and reached out to international media. So I guess that's a brief sum- summary of what we do and who we are.
0: Wow. Great summary. I think once again, that passes the test for Yanni, right? Yanni doesn't. <laughs> anytime we come across something that has to do with Cuba, Yanni makes sure, before we look into it at all, that is definitively anti communism and it appears that is the case. We actually went to the Operation Peter Pan Museum in Miami. Um what was that about a I year think ago? It
1: was like only like a regular museum. They just had an there, exposition about the Peter Pan.
0: Museum. Okay. So we, we went there and we was had it a mu- oh I'm sorry.
2: Was it was it the museum of the American diaspora the of the, uh, of yes. the diaspora? Yes, that they, they did have an exhibit. It's an exhibition that focused on the Cuban diaspora experience, and they had a, a special exhibition on Operation Pedro Pan. Before that, they had an exhibition on Celia Cruz, uh, and, and, and they'll have others. And it's, it's an important part of the, the community. Yes.
0: But the lady, the woman who, who gave us a tour was actually one of the Peter Pan children who had come over in whenever it was maybe 1961, I think, something along those lines. And at the end of the tour, which she gave us such a great tour, we got a nice photo of the three of us, we said, if there was one book that you would recommend we read, what would it be? And she said, Waiting for Snow in Havana, as you mentioned by Carlos Ayer, or however you pronounce his last name, I apologize. So, of course, you mentioned Carlos is actually involved with the Center for a Free Cuba.
2: Yes, he's a member of our research council. And I would agree with her that that is an excellent book to read. However, I would say there is a new book that just came out on June 21st that I would highly recommend, and not by a member of our research council or board. It's uh, by David Hoffman, and it's titled Give Me Liberty. It's the story of Osvaldo Payasa a Cuban dissident murdered in 2012 by Cuban state security. The 10 year anniversary is coming up next month of his uh, martyrdom.
0: Wow. Okay. So very cool. I think it's a great cause. Of course, me coming from a different perspective, I don't have any biological family from Cuba, anything along those lines. Uh, I was fortunately raised in a household where my father made it very clear to me how important it is to be appreciative for the freedom we have here in the United States. And so for me, I think this is a great cause because it's very relevant in the United States today. Of course, still in Latin America, Cuba is obviously still communist. Um, What was it? Chile uh, uh, had an election and they elected a Marxist leader. Then Colombia recently did. So all across Latin America, it still appears to be an issue Um, while in the United States, I think it's actually heading in a good direction among the Latin American community. I saw a poll recently that only 25% of Hispanic Americans currently support Joe Biden. So I don't know if that's any indicator of anything, but in your opinion, John, can you draw anything positive from
2: that? Well, I think that you have lamentably a good part of Latin America has gone to the hard left. Um, Venezuela, you mentioned Chile, Peru, now Colombia, um, and our efforts to destabilize governments in Ecuador. Uh, right now, pretty much in terms of, uh, center, center, right governments, what remains are, um, Uruguay, um, Paraguay and Ecuador. Brazil, although it looks like most likely that uh, Bolsonaro will not uh, win in October if the polling holds up to where it is presently with with Lula, so that would mean an entire swing of South America to the hard left with these three outposts, and of course they'll be targeted um, by the communist network there, which is called the Sao Paulo Forum, and their objective is to have, from C to shining C, uh, Marxist-Leninist governments, and they've succeeded uh, in that part of the world. And that's led to a mass exodus of people who have been, unfortunately, have suffered under those regimes to the United States. So I'm guessing part of the reason you see those numbers is because of a large number of the migrants have had first-hand experience with these type of regimes. And obviously, anytime they start to see things that are going in in the direction of what they experienced before they uh, have a um, immunological response almost against it.
0: Makes sense, John, if it's all right, I'm going to do a brief overview of my version of what happened in Cuba prior to 1959, take it all the way up to 2022. Yanni, you and John, at any point, you know, interrupt me. This will be very brief. And obviously I'll be leaving many Details out of my version. Um, But prior to 1959, Cuba was led by Flagencia Batista, more of a right leaning um, leader. And he was said to have been involved with um, many, possibly or probably, I guess, corrupt, you know, maybe. Uh, United States-based mafia, things like that. There was casinos, uh, a lot of involvement um, with the United States, um, organized crime uh, enterprises. However, despite all that, prior to 1959, Cuba, uh, according to most or many um, ways of evaluating an economy, had the strongest economy in Latin America— Okay. So, yes, there was corruption prior to 1959, but Cuba had the strongest economy in Latin America. Um, before I move any forward, Yanni or John, thus far, does everything sound about right?
2: Um, well, Fulgencio Batista was a dictator. He was actually um, someone that had been in Cuban political life for some time, but um, he wasn't right wing. He ran, his, he ran for president and was elected democratically in 1940. But when he ran in 1940, he ran in coalition with uh, the then-Cuban Communist Party. Ooh. And he had two communists in his cabinet. One of them, uh, Carlos Rafael Rodriguez, then under Fidel Castro, uh, became the uh, quote-unquote economic czar of the Cuban Revolution. Um, so to call Fulgencio Batista right winger, I guess if you compare him with Fidel Castro, who's, you know, Marxist, Leninist communist, you could say that. Um, the other thing that I think that's important to say is that between 1902 and 1959, uh, for the bulk of that time, there were competitive multi-party elections in Cuba. Uh, there were, uh, many presidents of Cuba. Um, uh, there were, uh, moments <clears throat> where the constitutional order was disrupted and there were revolutions, but not to the degree of what happened in 1959. I'm talking here about 1933 when, uh, a president who was democratically elected, didn't want to leave office and changed the constitution of the country and extended his rule. And you had a coalition of university students and enlisted men. Uh, who overthrew the officer class of the, of the Cuban military in something called the Sergeants' Revolt um, that managed to stop this gentleman by the name of Gerardo Machado from continuing his dictatorship. This was in 1933. And it was that episode that put Fulgencio Batista on the national spotlight. He was sort of a strong man behind the scenes. Between 1933 and 1940, in 1940 in Cuba, all the different political forces, from the far left to the far right, came together in a constitutional convention and drafted the Constitution of 1940, um, which is a social democratic constitution. And in 1940, there were democratic elections. That's about Batista, the one in coalition with the Communist Party in 1944. He couldn't run for real election because of the 1940 Constitution. And his opponents, uh, and something called the Authentical Party, won in 1944 that were populist conservatives and anti communists. And they won again in 1948. Batista returns to political life in Cuba in 1950, and he tries to run again for the presidency in 1952, but sees that he has no chance of winning. So he carries out a coup d'etat against the last democratically elected president of Cuba, whose name was Carlos Carras, on March 10th of 1952. Uh, this year marks 70 years without democracy in Cuba. But although the democratic order was interrupted by Batista in 1952, you still had opposition newspapers and independent press an independent judiciary. Um, and you still had the elements of the old Republic that still had influence and opposition parties that were still legal and and battling for, to restore democracy. So I guess I'll stop there. I guess that sort of filled in a bit, the portion you were talking about. Um, in terms of the casinos and the mafia, that's something that the regime, that the Castro regime tries to, to push. They were present there, but it wasn't something exorbitant. It wasn't what ran the country. Um, but I'll, I'll let you go from there.
0: Actually, um, do you agree with my statement that Cuba had the strongest economy in Latin America at that time? They exported sugar, uh, tobacco. What else, Yanni? Um, I mean, w- do, would you agree that it was arguably the, the strongest economy in Latin
2: America at the time? Um, it was in the top. It was in the top three. I think what. What what was present that might have not been present in other more wealthy and wealthier Latin American countries was a very strong labor union movement. So you had a middle class in Cuba, um, and you also had a very strong public health sector in Cuba that existed prior to 1959, uh, which the Castro regime has tried to disappear and rewrite that history. So it was it was a a country that did have. Um, a strong private economy. It wasn't as strong as it should have been because going back to the constitution of 1940, it did have a lot of social democratic elements to it. And there were a lot of regulations. Um, But it was in terms of living standards uh, in the top three in Latin America, also in literacy rates, uh, in terms of health, in terms of caloric intake, they were one of the top countries in Latin America per, per capita.
0: Okay, and there are many different directions I could go, um, in particular with, like, Yanni, your family history and everything, ha- how it's relevant along those lines. But before I move to <clears throat> my gringo version of the revolution in 1959, Yanni, do you have anything you'd like to add to that prior to 1959? Um, not really. Not really, okay. Okay. Um, so in 1959, well, it started before then, 53, <clears throat> Fidel Castro and his brother and some other people tried to, um, you know, take over and they, I think Castro ended up doing some time in prison, got out, long story short, in 1959, I think it was January 1st, 1959, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, Raul Castro, and a group of, uh, their followers, uh, took control of Cuba. And originally, they did not immediately have an ideological set of principles they were following, but they were quickly um, influenced by the Soviet Union, Marxism, I think Raul Castro and Che Guevara, maybe even more so than Fidel at the beginning, were heavily influenced by communist uh, Russia. And that was right at the beginning when Fidel Castro and, and his people took over Cuba. Do you guys have anything you'd like to add to that?
2: Yes, um, right in the beginning would have been in 1953. Carlos Rafael Rodriguez, that person I mentioned that had been a minister under Fulgencio Batista. uh, After Batista leaves office in 1944, he goes into opposition because you had anti-communist governments after that. Um, When Batista does his coup d'etat, Fidel Castro starts conspiring violently overthrow Mr. Batista and a few days before uh, the the, uh, July 26, 1953 assault on the Moncada barracks, he goes to a communist, the Communist Party bookstore in Havana, meets with someone who then introduces him to Carlos Rafael Rodriguez. So his first contacts uh, that we have documented with high-level communists is in 1953. We also know that Raul Castro was a card-carrying member of the Cuban Communist Party, and Ernesto Che Guevara was a, a red diaper baby. His parents were communists, he was a communist. Uh, so it wasn't, the, the narrative some tried to portray that Fidel Castro was not ideologically fixed uh, before 1959 is not true. He was. He was a communist. He had planned a communist takeover in Cuba, but he knew for a couple of reasons that to announce that to the Cuban people uh, would have meant he would have never gotten into power. And maybe there are two reasons why, for it.
1: Maybe that's why he there, there lied, are, right?
2: Oh, he lied, because and he said it. He yeah. said it years later. He said but he if he wasn't. had told people what he, what he wanted to do, he would have never made it. He said it explicitly, but let me explain a little bit of the history of why. I mentioned in 1933 that there had been a struggle against another dictator, Herado Machado. In that struggle that was carried out by students and enlisted men, one of them being Florencio Batista, there was a general strike called for, and one group broke the strike and tried to cut a deal with the dictator, Herado Machado. And that was the Cuban communist party. Now my was driven out of power and that action by the Cuban communist party made them terribly unpopular. So that was one strike against them. Secondly, when you go into the 19, into the 1950s, um, and Cubans looking at the cold war that was starting up there in the fifties and the Soviet union, Hungary, the invasion of Hungary, um, communism was viewed very negatively. So if you see Fidel Castro's um, speech, History Will Absolve Me, uh, wh- which he gives after he's captured for the assault of the Moncada barracks on July 26th, 1953, and is put on trial. Unlike today, uh, the press and the diplomatic corps had access to the trial to get an uncensored version. And in that trial, he gives a speech where he outlines his case. Two interesting items. One, there is no nationalist anti-American rhetoric in that speech. And two, he's appealing to the restoration of the pre-existing democratic order and the constitution of 1940. There's no discussion of a communist revolution or even a socialist revolution. It's a discussion about restoring democracy. Why? Because socioeconomically Cuba was doing well, as you indicated, and there wasn't felt the need for a total uh, transformation of the socioeconomic system. What people believed was needed was a restoration of democracy, which had been betrayed by Fuencio Batista. So Fidel Castro was denying that he was a communist. Uh, he was claiming to be an anti-communist. And he had people at the New York Times, like Herbert Matthews, that were writing a series of columns making the case that he was an anti communist, that he was a Democrat and a Jeffersonian. And this uh, argument was so effective that uh, the U.S. elements in the U.S. State Department bought it. And in March of 1958, a delegation of Fidel Castro's July 26 movement went to Washington, D.C., to the U.S. State Department and persuaded the United States government to place an arms embargo on Fulgencio Batista. And in December of 1958, the U.S. ambassador, Earl Smith, to Cuba in Havana, basically told Fulgencio Batista that his future there was not tenable.
0: That does remind me, I've seen, of course, I don't speak Spanish, but I did see the one video of a very young Fidel Castro saying in English into a camera i am not communist
1: <laughs> right yeah
0: so that must have been part of his
1: Acting. tactic
0: to get into office although he of course probably not the mo- not the most honest man of all time he knew he was communist
2: yeah he knew that he was communist and as a matter of fact when he takes pa- when he when he gets in which you know, uh, Fulgencio Batista flees Cuba in the early hours of January 1st, 1959. Catches Fidel Castro a little off guard. So he has he's out in the east of the country and he has to do a track across to Havana. I think he gets there uh, January 5th, January 6th. Um, he's proclaiming that this is going to be this great democratic revolution. But he was already meeting secretly with the Cuban Communist Party and setting up a shadow government to take over. That was from the beginning. And the way they went about it was publicly, he's talking, we're gonna have free elections, we're gonna have democracy, human rights, da-da-da. And then privately they were threatening the owners of newspapers that if they printed anything negative, it would cost them their lives. And within the space of a year, he had consolidated control. He had shut down independent newspapers. He had taken over the universities, um, politicized them, had carried out mass executions that were televised to terrorize the population. So they understood what the consequences were of the dissent. and a police state was built in no time with the help of the KGB and the East German Stasi.
0: Wow. And that, that reminds me, I guess, this is a good segue into the next chapter of the history of modern Cuba. At one point, I remember, and I think it was in English, or maybe I read the subtitles, Yanni. You probably were with me when I watched it. A reporter said to Fidel Castro, I don't know if it was 1961 or 60, somewhere along those lines, you promised that there would be democratically held elections. Oh, yeah. When are we going to have these elections? Actually, you talked about. Actually,
1: was that woman, remember? Female reporter. Yeah, I can't
0: remember. Barbara her name. Walters, maybe.
1: Maybe yeah. Maybe
0: Barbara Walters. I don't know. But he he just looked into the camera and he was like, "Why would we have elections?" So, <laughs> once he got into control,
1: he tried to avoid the topic.
0: He just he just said. <laughs> None of the, I mean very political, that's how it works in politics, unfortunately, right. but just completely discarded everything he had said prior. he
1: got rid of, of the old books and the whole he
0: history. burned the books he as you said earlier, John, he destroyed the old school systems. I think he um
1: but totally totally against church and Catholic very anti-catholicism
0: and, just destroyed everything that could possibly be linked
1: yeah
0: to the old guard right. Exactly. Um, so from from that point forward, once again, this is my, as I'll call it, my gringo version. From that, <laughs> from that point forward, Fidel Castro and the Communist Party of Cuba had control of the people. And at different times, you know, they had uh, uh, the Soviet Union supported them financially for years. Yanni, you were raised mm-hmm. in Cuba thinking that Russia was just, you know, they were great. They would send you, what was it? They would send you uh, canned milk and, and food. Yeah. And, and that it was like, thank God we have Russia. They're so nice. They're so giving. Um, but then, of course, with the fall of communism in Russia, things dried up. That takes us, I guess, to what, 89? Or really, the special period, I think, in Cuba started it uh, in the yeah, early uh, 90s. 91, yeah. I don't know, 92, something along those lines. So at certain points through the, the, the past Um, 63 years of the Communist Party controlling Cuba, things have been, for the people of Cuba, things have been maybe a little bit better and then they would get worse and all sorts of different uh, uh, variations that go on. At one point in the 90s, they started to open it up a little bit to where people could start attending uh, Christian or Catholic churches again. So it hasn't been exactly uh, the most consistent thing, but what has been consistent over the past 63 years in Cuba is... If you speak out against the government publicly or even in private, you you run the risk of being put in jail uh, or who knows, maybe even killed, I think. Uh, If you want to leave the country, you say, hey, I want to go to the United States. I want to go to this country or that country. They will say, okay, you just need to apply. But in reality, they basically don't let you leave this island. So they have, what is it, 11 million basically captive, uh, uh, brainwashed prisoners Over the past 63 years where they they have no or or very minimal uh, semblance of of human rights. And all the way up until, I guess, July 11th of 2021, there wasn't really even any out, you know, public protests against the Cuban regime. Uh, John?
1: There was one in the 90s. Okay.
2: Yeah. What am I missing? Hold on. Hold on. Yes. Okay. First off, let me, I want to touch a bit on religion. Uh, May 1961, the dictatorship confiscated private schools and most seminaries in Cuba. In September of 1961, at gunpoint, they gathered 131 priests, brothers, and a bishop and put them on board the Spanish ship Cobadonga and deported them from Cuba. Uh, The remaining priests, including uh, the prior cardinal Jaime Ortega, were sent to forced labor camps. This was in the 1960s. Was that in Russia
1: or in uh, Cuba the labor camps?
2: In Cuba. Cuba. That was in Cuba. The Castro regime declared itself an atheist state and ultimately hostile to religion in 19 the year of 1969 1970 Fidel Castro and now, well 1968 he had a revolutionary offensive that wiped out even small level private enterprise in Cuba. And by small level private enterprise I mean a shoe shine. In other words, if you had a box and something to shine a shoe uh, that was prohibited to that level. So all private initiative was wiped out. In 1969, 1970, he announces this goal to have a 10 million ton sugar harvest. And under the pretext of that 10 million ton sugar harvest ended Christmas. Christmas would not return to Cuba until 1997. And it returned because it was negotiated for by Pope John Paul II as a precondition to his 1998 trip to Cuba. Now, you mentioned about the lack of resistance. Um, there, I have I must beg to differ. In Cuba, there was fierce resistance to the dictatorship uh, throughout the 1960s. There was a armed Uh, anti-communist guerrilla movement in the Escambray made up of many of the people who had fought alongside Fidel Castro. Because the the issue is when we go back to the July 26th movement and the rhetoric he was using was that of being an anti-communist. So he actually had anti-communist in his ranks, highly positioned. People like Uber Matos who actually obtained the weapons for the revolution and was one of the main commandantes. There was an American commandant in the July 26th movement by the name of William Morgan, who I believe was from Ohio. I'm, I'm not incorrect. My recollection. When Fidel Castro starts with his mixed messaging and these people see, Oh, he's saying he's an anti-communist, but we see uh, the government being filled with communists. Um, Uber Matos Tried to resign a number of times and was put on trial, charged with treason. The charge was that he was accusing Fidel Castro of being a communist. And he was sentenced to over 20 years in prison. When Fidel Castro came out a couple years later and said not only was he a communist, but he had always been a communist, uh, that did not lead to Mr. Matos being free. He he served out his sentence. William Morgan was shot by firing squad in the early years of the revolution. But there were others who made it into the hills of the Escambray of Cuba from 1960 to 1966, fought uh, the Castro regime in the hills. Cuba had Soviet counterinsurgency experts that used brutal methods to put them down. We still don't know how many people were killed uh, during that time, but it was a much bloodier affair than what had taken place in the uh, war against uh, Fulgencio Batista in the 50s with uh, Castro's guerrillas. And so that that was an example of armed resistance in the 1960s. Obviously, you have the Bay of Pigs invasion where you know, thousands of Cuban exiles trained in Central America and landed on the beaches of the Bay of Pigs and fought and were captured. Unfortunately, those intelligence, like was the case with, Fidel Castro in 1956 when he invaded Cuba La Granma, Batista's people knew they were coming and they were able to wipe them out. Uh, In that case, it was a small group that made it through. In 1961, Fidel Castro knew they were coming and was able to wipe out that invasion force. Um, So that's the 1960s. In the 70s, you had most of the opposition in prison, but within the prisons in 1976, The Cuban Committee for Human Rights comes into existence. And this was a movement that began documenting human rights abuses inside of the island. And in the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, when Radio Martí is created, and you're able to uh, broadcast through shortwave, and people in the island are able to call in and have their messages uh, bounce back into Cuba, the Cuban Committee for Human Rights was able to become a a known force in the island, and we were able to compile large amounts of information on human rights abuses that made it out through diplomatic pouches, uh, to the UN human rights council, the inter-American commission for human rights. And with a very strong, uh, backing of the U S administration on the human rights issue in Geneva, the Reagan administration placed Armando Valladares, another great book, by the way, against all hope. So Armando Valladares was jailed for over 20 years. He was uh, freed due to a campaign done by his wife. And when he got out of prison within a few months, the Reagan administration made him the UN ambassador to the human rights commission in Geneva, Switzerland. And during the Reagan administration, you had this, uh, I guess, three prongs that came in. You had the Cuban committee for human rights that was gathering reports on the situation the human rights situation on the ground in Cuba and getting it out uh, through diplomatic pouches and other visitors to the island, uh, to the UN, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights. You had uh, Radio Martí that was broadcasting into the island. And with that broadcasting going back and forth, people would get their messages out and then have it bounce back into the island. So Cubans knew about this movement, like the Cuban Committee for Human Rights and they knew about what was going on in Geneva and the reports multiplied about human rights abuses in the country of the situation in the prisons. And what we saw in 1988, 1989 was so much pressure brought to bear that for the only time uh, since 1959 and since 1989, the Castro regime allowed the international committee of the Red Cross into the prisons for inspection. Amnesty International Human Rights watched to Visit the Island and also a delegation from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. What came out of that were reports that were so damning that a position of special rapporteur on Cuba was created in the UN Human Rights Commission and Cuba found itself annually having its human rights uh, record examined by the UN. And they were condemned over more than 10 years. This was a victory of the Cuban committee for human rights and U S solidarity. But it also meant that because of this, um, breaking of the information monopoly that new groups came into existence. One of them in 1988 was the Christian liberation movement led by Osvaldo Payar Sardinas. And Sardinas, was influenced by Lech Malesa, Vasa Pavel. um, And the idea was that they would look at the existing system and try to find features of it that they could use to challenge the system. And in the Cuban Cuban Constitution that then existed, there was something called Article 88G that said, if you could get 10,000 signatures, that would be a legislative initiative that would have to be debated. By the Cuban National Assembly. So, Payal, with the Varela Project, was able to obtain 11,020 signatures in May of 2002, and those signatures uh, were turned in, and the regime, in principle, had to, respecting its own law, debate it. Uh, a few days after it was turned in, Jimmy Carter was in Cuba at the University of Havana. And made reference to the Varela Project and asked the Cuban government to let the Cuban people know about it. Of course, he's saying this in a national broadcast on Cuban television. So that was one way of them at least knowing the name Varela Project. The Cuban government never allowed it since they had monopoly control over all media and no one ever saw an actual draft of the Varela Project. And the way people got to see it was these members of the Christian Liberation Movement knocking on doors and Showing them the project and explaining it to get their signature. The regime's response to that was a massive crackdown, uh, declaring the Constitution of Cuba unchangeable. Uh, and the crackdown over 40 members of the Varela Project Initiative were sentenced anywhere from 15 to 28 years in prison. A remaining 30 something were also sentenced to long prison terms who were independent journalists, human rights defenders in their own right. And the idea was in March of 2003 that that would destroy the opposition movement. It did not. A new movement came up in defiance to that crackdown called the Ladies in White, led by Lara Foyan, who was a former school teacher whose husband, an independent journalist, had been jailed to a ridiculously long prison sentence. And they spent 10 years in the streets protesting openly and defiantly against the regime, demanding their loved one's freedom. And they obtained it by late 2010, early 2011, Lada Poyan and the ladies in white, the regime expected they would disband once all their loved ones were back home. But what they said was, until the laws are changed and there are no more new prisoners of conscience, we're going to continue. Within a few uh, weeks of that statement, of Poyan had died under suspicious circumstances. That was in 2011. In 2012, July 22nd, 2012, uh, Osvaldo and adhered to federal leader in his youth movement uh, were extrajudicially executed by Cuban state security. I'll, I'll stop there, but just to say that there, there's been a lot in the way of protest in, you know, the 1960s, which I mentioned Escambray, 1994, the Maleconazo, where you had thousands of Cubans take to the streets calling for freedom and an end to dictatorship. These initiatives of the Cuban dissident movement, and obviously we saw um, July. Uh, 11th through 13th of 2021 another outburst of cubans demanding freedom
0: so i guess uh, an explanation for why the the cuban communist party has been able to keep control for this long despite there being you know opposition within the island is would you would you both agree the fact that guns are illegal in cuba has contributed to that
2: yeah, I, I think that before, yeah. I think, more, I think more than that has been that there's been an international environment that has been going in the wrong direction in terms of backing freedom movements because there, there were no guns in Poland, Hungary, mm. Czechoslovakia in the 1980s. There were guns in Hungary in 1956, but that didn't stop them from being crushed, uh, bloodily crushed. There were guns in Cuba in the 1960s. There was an armed uh, guerrilla rebellion that lasted six years that was brutally crushed by Soviet counterinsurgency forces. So they know how to kill. And in fact, what we've seen over the years is that what they hate are not nonviolent movements in Cuba. They have encouraged with their double agents people to take up arms here in Miami and go to Cuba and then have a firefight and then put these people on trial to then say that the opposition are a bunch of terrorists and to shut down uh, nonviolent opposition by trying to link them up with violent elements. So that's been a consistent feature of the regime. But what I, and, and you also saw that under solidarity and that they would try to get the opposition to embrace violence to then justify their elimination. With a nonviolent movement, it's much more difficult to do that. But the situation is on the international front with the rise of China as a hegemonic power and the decline of international human rights standards, the international environment is not as healthy, uh, for democratic movements around the world than it was, let's say in 1989, 1990. I think that's the, the the key difference. There are too many people, uh, like the European Union, for example, that describes Cuba as a one-party democracy and does business with the dictatorship, or Canadians that do business with the dictatorship, um, that give it a pass and are are silent to the, to the atrocities and brutalities being committed today.
0: Um, Yanni has... Okay, so fast forward to 2022. I know that was in a very much so abbreviated version of everything that has went on since prior to the the Castro revolution, all the way up to 2022, many proponents of communism in the United States, people who will defend, and I've seen it, people who actually defend communism (laughs) to Yanni's face, I've seen it, uh, they will say Mm -hmm. the doctors and the, the healthcare system in Cuba is so great. It's just unmatched. The literacy rates are you know, unprecedented and things like that. Yanni, you have experienced recently where you're, uh, not to go into too much details, but you have a family member who has some uh, health issues, some thyroid issues, thyroid issues, need some relatively very basic medication in Cuba. Yeah. And despite the wonderful healthcare system in Cuba, they cannot access even the most basic of treatments for something such as a thyroid well, first, issue.
1: First of all, like tests, lab tests, they can't, they're, get their lab test done because there's nothing. They go to the doctor and there's nothing. And then they're all... How can you get a treatment if you don't check your level?
0: So they don't have the equipment to do the necessary testing. Right. And then beyond that, they don't even have the, the equipment to to do the, the the treatment. So instead of it being the best healthcare system on the planet, as many insane American lefties claim, and it's, it's argu- full, I would say it's arguably the worst.
1: And it's all the full... It, it's all... Thanks to the embargo. That's what they,
0: the whole thing is blamed on the embargo. Yeah. John, uh, do you so have any I, thoughts on that?
2: Uh, unfortunately too many thoughts on the subject and it's, <laughs> it's disturbing because it's not just, the, it's not just the lefties. Uh, the Washington post has had a big spread on the uh, wonders of the Cuban vaccination program. And yes, a lot of people, even people on the right believe the rhetoric about the healthcare system in Cuba. I would recommend anyone who wants to deal with this seriously, uh, that they read Catherine Hirschfield's, uh, book health politics and revolution in Cuba since 1898 It was published in 2009. She's someone that went in Cuba with the same, uh, uh, vision of Cuba as a healthcare superpower, but something happened to her. She got sick with dengue and ended up somehow, in the Cuban healthcare system, but not like a tourist treated like a Cuban. And what she found illuminated her work. And it was that there's basically, there's a three tiered healthcare system in Cuba. Uh, there's a tier for the elite of the regime and for tourists that has all the best equipment, state of the art, um, they can get you, uh, reasonably decent care. Although I would argue that it's completely politicized and there's also a money motive even greater than in the United States or in a free market system with healthcare, because they're looking to squeeze out every dime they can out of the visitor. So there are unnecessary surgeries. There's unnecessary protocols because they want to squeeze everything they can out of you. But that, that part of it is all right. Then there's the system that the average Cuban gets where there is none of that equipment, where there's not, there's no aspirin where you have to go with blankets and where you have to be bringing the food to the hospital, where there's a complete lack of hygiene, where things are overrun by cockroaches and rats and other vermin and where Cubans actually have died of exposure because the staff have pulled out the windows from a hospital facility. Uh, there was a case that was well-documented in 2010 at a psychiatric hospital in Havana called um, La Mazora, It's how it's popularly known. 26 patients died of exposure. And the picture were smuggled out, and it looked like something out of a concentration camp. The, the, that's the reality. Now, even with the fake statistics that they provide, which are not reliable because there's no way to independently verify them. Cuba's healthcare system is worse than the healthcare system of the United States by the numbers. Costa Rica, Colombia, Chile. This is Chile pre-Boric Canada have healthcare systems that are superior to in terms of statistics to that of the United States in terms of health outcomes. When still mystifies me is to hear all these politicians here echoing the Cuban communist propaganda about the Cuban healthcare system, which even with the fake numbers that they provide is still worse than the U.S. healthcare system. While they ignore democracies like Costa Rica that have a superior healthcare system, which by the way, has been attacked by Russian hackers uh, over the last few weeks to try to cripple it, which is an interesting occurrence that one should look at because I think that the Costa Rican system, a democracy that's able to provide for their citizenry in all aspects is a living refutation of the communist regime in Cuba. Um, What I can say is, and and let me go with one more example, which goes to COVID-19. The Cuban regime has a history of covering up epidemics. They've covered up dengue, they've covered up cholera, Doctors that tried to speak up were jailed. Uh, Desi Mendoza, for example, in the late '90s, was threatened with an eight. Went to prison, served a year, was uh, condemned to eight years in prison for warning the people who were dying of dengue. Why? Because the Castro regime wanted the tourists coming in in the middle of an epidemic. Amnesty International did a campaign for him. They were able to get him out of prison, but only under condition he would go into exile in Spain. So He couldn't stay in his own country. Under cholera, we had a journalist, Calixto Martinez, who was jailed for months for reporting on the inefficiencies of the Cuban government in response to that epidemic. And with COVID-19, and I think it also played a role in what happened on July, of, uh, July 11th through the 13th of 2021, the regime did something particularly perverse. They decided for their propaganda purposes that Cuba was going to be the one country in the world that used completely uh, domestically produced vaccines to inoculate their population. The one problem was they didn't have their vaccines ready. So while the rest of Latin America in December of 2020 started getting vaccines for their people from anywhere, be it Pfizer, uh, be it from Russia or Sinopharm from the Chinese, what have you, they were getting vaccines into arms of their citizens. The Cubans, Did not request any vaccines. And it was not until June of 2021 uh, that they started vaccinating Cubans in the island. This is with uh, several vaccines that have not been vetted, had not been peer reviewed, had not been approved by the World Health Organization. They were covering up deaths of COVID as early as March of 2020. There were images in 2020 of a body out in the street and the police afraid to. Uh, go near it because they're afraid they would get COVID. And at the same time, officially the Cubans were not recognizing that there was COVID spreading throughout the country. By May of 2021, so many people were dying that they couldn't cover it up anymore. And you had figures showing thousands of people dying of COVID. And I think what happened was Cubans realized that this government did not get vaccines. And when they could, they allowed Cubans to die. So they could brag, and they were bragging on social media, how they were going to be the first country to inoculate people with their Cuban-made, homemade vaccines, which is what they did and what they've done, and is actually being repeated now in American newspapers, which is an outrage.
0: So the entirety of the Cuban healthcare system is a farce, I guess we could say, you know, there's. Uh, uh, for for so many years, they've claimed the Cuban healthcare system. They've sent doctors and humanitarian type aid across the world, and that justifies, according to them, justifies their horrible mistreatment uh, of their own people. Uh, another thing people often tout. Well, And hold
2: on, hold yeah. on, hold on. Though. <laughs> and those doctors be, those doctors being exported around the world—it's a money-making enterprise for the regime. And those doctors are victims of human trafficking, according to the UN. By the way. They go abroad. They're not allowed to bring their families with them, one. Two, 90% of the income they receive from the host country goes straight to the Cuban government. So some of them are trying to eke out an existence in those countries uh, with a bare minimum of income coming in, while 90% is going to the coffers of the dictatorship.
0: Wow. So every every part of justification for the Cuban regime appears to be complete and total horseshit, at least from my perspective. Uh, another commonly touted pro to the Cuban system is the educational system. The literacy rates are, what is it, Yanni? They say 100% literacy rate? No, not
1: Some, you know, they always make it the best.
0: It's the best. So it's 99.9% literacy rates. John, we don't have a lot of time left in the episode today, but I think that's a very important topic that people do tout often about the Cuban system, what are your thoughts be on brief. the Cuban educational system? Yes.
2: I'll be very brief. First, the Cuban education healthcare systems prior to 1959 were excellent. The statistics had come out, have put them in the top of Latin America pre 1959 and then post 1959, the data that they're providing is not reliable because it cannot be independently verified. And secondly, the education system has been completely politicized. It's no longer education. It's indoctrination. And if you're not a loyal revolutionary, they have a saying, the universities are for revolutionaries. So if you don't have the Castro regime's line, you can be barred from higher education. And finally, the the teachers are paid so poorly that they have to moonlight as taxi drivers to be able to get enough to eat that there's a lack of teachers in Cuba. So what the regime was doing for a period of time was setting up televisions with videos from a centralized lo- centralized location, they'd have a thirteen or fourteen year old managing the videos, and they would be sort of like a guest teacher in the classrooms. So the quality of what these students are getting uh, first, it's indoctrination, but secondly, there is an absence of teachers because the teachers literally go hungry in Cuba. Wow. Okay. Um, in
0: twenty twenty two, Yanni is getting, you know, speaking with her sister over in in Cuba or, you know, hearing from friends and occasionally, well, to your credit, Yanni, shortly before July 11th of 2021, like a week before, she said to me, John, she said, I think this Cuban regime type, the government is going down. They're not doing good. And this is a good sign for freedom coming in Cuba. And then something did happen the next week. Yanni still says similar things to me. It's very sad um but you are optimistic yanni at times that the worst that it gets there that in in the long run maybe that'll be better for the freedom of cuba am i correctly um you know articulating what, what your thoughts are yanni
1: uh yes i think it it happened um uh, that july 11 started something is it's a uh what is it called like a clock
0: it's a clock. They, they, it's they're a on the ticking clock. I like can team America, a ticking yeah. clock. Um, they, th- they're on borrowed time. John, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's true? Cuba right. is doing so poor right now. Venezuela has dried up. They're not supporting them. Is Cuba on borrowed time?
2: I think they are on borrowed time internally. But what concerns me is, as I said, the international environment is favoring them in the sense mm. Cuba right now is leading the disinformation effort for Russia for their invasion in Ukraine. You have Venezuela has dried up, but there are new countries lining up to be spigots for Cuba. Colombia is one, uh, Peru may be another, Chile may be another. Uh, AMLO in Mexico is a close friend of the Cuban dictatorship. I mean, now during the summit of the Americas, you refused to go because the United States wouldn't invite uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel to attend the summit of the Americas. So the, the international constellation of, uh, of forces right now does favor the regime abroad, internally, It's a basket case. Um, I think the, and what we're trying to do is push for the democracies to side with the Cuban people and not the Cuban dictatorship and support their democratic aspirations. And sadly, uh, what we've been seeing has been a bit of a mixed bag from the world's democracies. They're saying the right things, but when it comes to concretely pushing for the Cubans too often, they're providing resources to the dictatorship.
0: Wow. Okay, John. So if someone's listening, hopefully someone's listening to this episode, they were maybe on the fence about how they feel about the Cuban government and this has sold them. They need to support the, the Cuban people to be free. And what free means is freedom of speech, freedom to leave the country whenever they want. I mean, if someone wants to be communist, I guess I don't really care. But as long as they have, you know, the ability to leave the country on their own terms, that's where, you, in my opinion, you have to draw the line. And um, how could someone listening, John, support the people of Cuba and them hopefully being free soon?
2: Well, one thing concretely they could do is to tell their congressman, because one of the main avenues of abuse is that the Castro regime priced out is Cubans. So they don't allow Cuban farmers to sell their products directly to Cubans. They have to sell it to the regime through something called an arcopio. Over 50% of Cuban crops rot because of the inefficiencies of the communist centralized planning system. What is feeding Cubans today, 70 to 80% is food imported from abroad. Most of it comes from the United States. The problem is the chicken that is bought in Arkansas that is sold in Cuba is bought by the communists at $1 a kilo. They're selling it to the Cubans at $7 a kilo when they have a fraction of the income of Americans who buy their chicken at about $3 a kilo. So, I would argue, especially those folks that are living in agricultural areas that do business with Cuba, tell your representatives to demand that the Cubans stop price gouging Cubans and allow Cuban farmers to sell their produce directly to the Cuban people. That would improve the amount of food available to Cubans by 50% in Cuba today.
0: Do you think it's as simple as vote Republican? The anti, the left, and that also will contribute to um, not only freedom in Cuba and other Latin American countries, but we also want to prevent this from coming to the United States. Do you think it's safe to say avoid voting Democrat at all costs?
2: Well, I think what you need to avoid is avoid voting for people that support communist China, doing business with communist regimes like China or like Cuba, and sadly, that's something that you'll find uh, across the board, you'll find Republicans that do business like people like former Senator Jeff Blake was a big advocate and had a lot of deep contacts in the communist regime in Cuba. You had other Republicans that were big into doing business in communist China. I mean, Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, and then of course their democratic counterparts. They may have different motives. You may have people on the democratic party left like Bernie Sanders, AOC that ideologically, sympathize, but then you have other people on the Republican side that for economic interest, end up getting in bed with some of these same regimes. Both are unacceptable. So you really need to do your homework in examining the candidates and make sure you don't get someone that will sell out freedom in America, either because they're ideologically committed to communism or they want to make money with communists, even if it means sacrificing the freedom of future generations.
0: John Suarez, I really appreciate you joining Yanni and I for today's episode. Before we wrap things up, how can anyone listening follow you and follow and support your
2: organization? Um, they're welcome to visit our webpage, which is www.cubacenter.org. Um, and also you can subscribe to our Cuba Brief there. You can also reach me by email at uh john.suarez, S-U-A-R-E-Z at cubacenter.org.
0: I love it, John. Thank you very much for your time. Hopefully, we get to catch up with you again sometime soon. You know, there's actually a lot of Cubans here in the Louisville, Kentucky area. So, this is a a popular area for this type of a, a topic. So, John, once again, thank you very much for your time. Have a great rest of your day. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Yanni. Bye
0: want to thank everyone for tuning in to The Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. All right.